Hey guys, it's Jessie. I realized when reviewing this episode that I made a mistake around the 11 minute mark when the lawyers are making their closing arguments during the trial, I accidentally referred to them as their opening statements. So I'm sorry about the confusion and I will re-record when I get more time, but I don't want to delay releasing this episode since part one and two were just released. So uh, sorry for the confusion and enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the third and final episode of the Brenda Sue Schaefer case. This is Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm Jesse Bartholomew. And when we left off last time, Mel Ignato would finally be going on trial for the murder of Brenda Sue Schaefer. They had just decided to move the trial to Kenton County, Kentucky, so that they could find a possibly more unbiased jury. So I'll go ahead and pick up there. Opening statements were given on December 9th, 1991. And a month before that, Judge Johnstone ruled that the 13-minute tape recording from that day in the car could be admitted. One thing that was noted as strange was that Prosecutor Jasmine didn't show a photo of Brenda in his opening statement. And Actually, a photo of her wasn't presented to the jury at all till much later in the case. I just found that unusual. In his opening, uh, Charlie Ricketts harped on the fact that they had no physical evidence tying Mel to the crime scene. And Ricketts again brought up Brenda's ex-boyfriend, Jim Rush, as a suspect. And he had actually passed away before the trial started, but they were still trying to kind of move the blame to him. In his opening statement, Ricketts also referred to Marianne as, quote, Benedict Arnold, sure in low. So he made her out to be an extremely jealous, vindictive woman. Jim Wesley testified for hours on day two, uh, and then he had to go back on the stand again the following day. And that's when Ricketts asked him, quote, Do you know one piece of physical evidence which connects Melvin Henry Ignato to the death of Brenda Sue Schaefer? And he had to say no, and he told the court, quote, No, sir, I know of none, bearing in mind that most of the physical evidence was collected 15 months after her death. You know, letting the court know, of course we don't have a lot of evidence. It was forever before we found the body. So... Ricketts also pointed out that if the photographs of the torture and murder really existed, why hadn't they surfaced? Where were these photographs? Brenda's brother Tom testified Friday morning. He started by describing the way Mel was acting that morning after Brenda's disappearance. Um, you'll remember that was, that was that first morning and Brenda's mom really didn't want him there. And Tom said, quote, He was just real skittery, real nervous, kind of babbling back and forth to members of the family, and I was trying to stay away from him, basically. He told the court about the meetings with Mel at Kingfish, the way Mel had all Brenda's assets documented. He also confirmed that Brenda had told him she was planning on ending things with Mel. So, Brenda had told everyone that. You know, everyone in her life pretty much knew that Brenda's plan was to get away from Mel. 
Now, Linda Love took the stand next, and she confirmed the same thing. Brenda wanted Mel out of her life, and she was afraid of him. And something Ricketts asked her really made me mad. He said to Linda, quote, if something was If someone was doing something to you for eight months and made you hate them, would you call the abuse hotline? Would you get out of the relationship? Would you tell that person to pound pineapples? And this question just really discounts the ability of abusers to manipulate and control their victims. I mean, you have no idea what you would do in this situation. And I understand why he had to ask, but I just, I hate questions like that. Um, anyway, the following week, more of Brenda's friends and co-workers testified that she was planning to leave Mel and that she feared him. And they brought in Brenda's hairstylist, Tom Tilford, who said, quote, she said to me, if I ever see that asshole again, it will be too soon. And that was during an appointment the very morning of the day Brenda went missing. Now, on December 17, 1991, Marianne Shore finally took the stand. And here is Bob Hill's description of her appearance that day. Quote, Shore Inlow had gained a lot of weight. Her dyed blonde hair was severely pulled back into a short ponytail. Her bangs were puffed up over her forehead. Her plump face was accentuated with too much rouge, her blue eyes blinking owl-like behind large frame tinted glasses. She was wearing a gray jacket, a white blouse with a modest v-neck, and a short black skirt. She sat back in her elevated witness chair, right leg often crossed over the left, exposing much of her thighs to the jury. And there's like this famous set of photographs of her at the trial, and I'll post them on social media, but it was just not a good look. Um, Anyway, when asked specifically about the hole they dug... She said, quote, he started digging the hole, and I think there was some mention he was going to bury her in there. I told him I didn't want any part of that. He said, don't worry about it. We were just going to scare her. And she also said that he broke the first shovel he used, so he went out and bought a shorter shovel with a red handle and flat blade, just like the one they found in Mel's garage. Marianne told the court that on Friday, September 23rd, Mel came back over with black garbage bags, tape, and rope, plus an Olympus 35mm and rolls of color film. He also had with him the paddle, a dildo, KY jelly, and chloroform. According to Marianne, it was around 6 p.m. when Mel and Brenda arrived at her apartment, and Mel locked the door behind them as they entered. He made Brenda take off all her jewelry, then her clothing, and he had a checklist of what he wanted them to do to her. And the camera they used was a Christmas present to him from Brenda herself. And I'm not going to go into detail about every all the details of what she said happened that night. And if you want to read it, um, I do recommend the book Double Jeopardy. It's, it's a great book. Uh, Bob Hill did a great job. And it's all there. It's very heavy. I won't be able to get through it without crying. So um, 
the the important thing here is that there were times when Marianne could have stopped it. She could have unlocked the door and she could have called for help, but she didn't. And when it was done, Mel allegedly told her, quote, she didn't suffer. She went to sleep just like you'd be going to sleep, which is such absolute bullshit. Um, she suffered a lot. So, okay. Um, together they carried the body into the woods near the apartment. And she sat and watched Mel cover Brenda's body with dirt. And initially Mel told Marianne that she would get some of Brenda's jewelry, but he took it all with him. Before he left in Brenda's car, he sliced a small hole in the rear right tire with a paring knife and then pushed a nail into the hole. And Marianne followed him in her Vega onto the expressway and they pulled off to the shoulder near Breckenridge Lane and Mel hopped in her car, not before pulling that nail out of Brenda's tire. Now, during her cross-exam, Ricketts grilled her about the safe and she was confused about this. She said she'd never used that safe that Mel had in her house. It had never been to her house. It stayed at Mel's. And he worked really hard to make it look like she and she alone was guilty of the murder. So that day, they also heard from Barbara McGee. And remember, this was one of Mel's former girlfriends, the one who he brought a box of condoms, KY jelly, and a dildo, saying he thought the police were about to search his house, and they just he just didn't want them to see that stuff. And so she told the court about that, and she told them if she had known that that was stuff that had been used to commit a crime, she wouldn't have gotten rid of it all. But she did. She threw a lot of it away. Now, for the defense, a few former secretaries of Mel's testified that Marianne was extremely jealous when dating Mel, that she pestered him with phone calls. And other witnesses had similar sentiments, that she was even downright obsessed with him. Now, Charlie Ricketts took almost four hours to get through his um, his closing, his opening, but the closing of his opening, right? So the room was extremely tense that day, as you can imagine. The Schaefer family was there. The Ignato family was there, including his children. And at the end of his speech, Ricketts ended with him once again putting the blame on Marianne. He, he put the idea in the jury's brain that Marianne had been spying on Mel and Brenda the night she went missing. And after Brenda dropped Mel off, he said that Marianne followed her and signaled to her on the expressway to pull over. And when Brenda wasn't looking, Marianne let the air out of Brenda's tire, then abducted her by herself and murdered her by herself. Just nonsense. So following Ricketts' four-hour opening statement, Jasmine only spoke for about an hour. And among other things, he reiterated that it would be very hard to have any physical evidence in any case 15 months after the crime was committed. And so this is interesting. When asked later, Judge Johnstone said, quote, 
I wouldn't even have had to take a recess. I would have just declared Ignato guilty, and we could have gone directly into the sentencing hearing. And Judge Johnstone was feeling pretty good about the jury, too. He felt like they were going to find Mel guilty. And so we'll take a little break there. So when they led the jury out of the courtroom at 3.30 on Saturday, December 21st, 1991, the judge felt pretty good about this jury. He felt like they were going to make the right decision. And it was a tricky decision to make. So they didn't believe Rickett's explanation of what happened, um, but they really didn't totally believe the prosecution either or a damn thing that came out of Marianne's mouth. So what Ricketts had done successfully was convince most of them that the investigation had been sloppy at times. And they were disappointed that there wasn't anything more incriminating in that tape recording. So after the first hour, it was eight to four to acquit Mel. And after a few more hours, it jumped to 10 to two. And again, it was December 21st. It was four days before Christmas. They were tired. They wanted to go home. And the last two began to cave. So here's something terrible. They came to a decision. They did. But they stayed in the room way longer after they made the decision, laughing, exchanging phone numbers. Why on earth would they do this, you may be asking? Well because they didn't want to waste taxpayer money and not eat the Chinese food that had been ordered for them. They were waiting for their takeout as the Schaefer family waited outside to hear the verdict. So they sat in that room for a total of six hours and 15 minutes. And the courtroom was absolutely packed. And Dr. Spaulding and his wife were there. And Mike Schaefer thought he could tell the verdict from the look on Judge John Stone's face. And then he began reading. Quote, The jury's verdict is as follows. Under instruction number one, we, the jury, find the defendant, Melvin Henry Ignato, not guilty. On all charges, not guilty. Almost immediately, Ricketts asked the judge when his client could go free, to which John Stone replied, quote, You may wish to check. I understand the United States Marshal has placed a hold against him. So Jasmine, Wesley, and a few others accompanied the Schaefer family into another room, and Jasmine later said that the two most surprised people he observed in the courtroom when the verdict was read were Charlie Ricketts and Mel Ignato. A few of the jurors remembered feeling immediate remorse after looking into the eyes of the judge and sheriff's deputy in the courtroom. And later, Judge Johnstone would write a letter to the Schaefer family, which read as follows. Quote, Dear Tom, I want to express to you and your family my shock and dismay over the Ignato verdict. I am still unable to fathom how a jury could come to such a decision. I fear that it had little, if any, to do with the evidence. You can imagine how many times that I have been asked what happened, and I still don't have a rational explanation. 
I don't believe it was the fault of the Commonwealth. You and your family have my utmost respect for the manner in which you have suffered through this tragedy. I can only hope that your family will someday be able to put this behind you. Whether in this world or another, one day justice will be done. With warm regards, I am sincerely yours, Martin Johnstone. So that was it for the state of Kentucky. They would never have the chance to try him again for those crimes um, because of double jeopardy. So re-enter Roy Hazelwood. I mentioned him earlier towards the beginning. He worked in the behavioral sciences unit at the FBI Academy in Quantico. And Assistant U.S. Attorney Alan Sears reached out to Hazelwood after the trial, and Sears said he would need him to help convict Mel on perjury charges from his grand jury appearance in 1989. And he needed help convincing a jury that this wasn't just a crime of passion or greed. It was one of sexual sadism, and it would happen again if they didn't put him behind bars. They needed a federal jury to find Mel guilty, and their best bet was to better prepare Marianne, make her a more reliable and believable witness, and even better would be to somehow find new evidence. Mel was released on December 23, 1991, after spending roughly two years in jail. And U.S. Attorney Joe Whittle came to hold Mel's fate in his hands. He would have to obtain an indictment within one month of Mel's acquittal, and there was a lot of public pressure to go on with this. People wanted to see Mel behind bars, but it would be expensive. And hard to justify for the five-year sentence that comes with perjury and obstruction charges. But on January 8, 1992, Mel was indicted for perjury, subornation of perjury, and lying to the FBI by telling them Brenda had dropped him at his house the night she went missing. The maximum all these put together would bring was 15 years and 750000 in fines. And then Charlie Ricketts dropped Mel as his client, so he gets hit with these charges less than two weeks after he, Charlie said that working for Mel was too expensive. He wasn't getting paid. Ricketts already had a lien on his boat and his house, which weren't even his anymore, and he wasn't expecting them to go through with this federal indictment. He called the move irresponsible. So Mel showed up without representation to plead not guilty on January 21st, and he would from that point on have a court-appointed attorney, Thomas Clay, and Whittle would be joined by prosecutors Sears and Lazowski. In the midst of all this, Marianne had her date with the law on February 3rd, 1992, during which she made her first public apology for her participation in the crime. She was sentenced to five years prison time, and it was this strange moment where Mel was walking free while Marianne was serving time when it was so obviously backwards. I mean, absolutely, she should be in jail, but it was just crazy that she was while he was free. I mean, the way things played out up to this point almost couldn't have been any better for Mel. 
So Roy Hazelwood spent a couple days at FBI headquarters in Louisville in early March, and he was there to coach FBI agent Deirdre Fike, Alan Sears, and Jim Lasowski on how Malignato's profile could perfectly fit that of a sexual sadist. And boy, did he. So many things added up. I'll read a quote from Double Jeopardy here. Listener discretion advised. Quote, The pieces fit everything Marianne Shore and Lowe had said happened. A partner assisted in the murder. The victim was taken to a pre-selected area and tightly bound. There was anal rape, dildo penetration, torture, murder. The body was concealed. The sexual torture recorded on tape or film for future gratification. So he was textbook. I only read you guys that part because I want to drive home how much this guy fit the profile to a T. And they also made a list of all his stressors, which included things like losing his job, their breakup, failed real estate attempts, things like that. Hazelwood also insisted that those photographs still exist. Sure, Mel had the opportunity to destroy them, but it wouldn't fit the profile. He truly believed those photographs were still around somewhere. Now, things were trickier because Marianne had technically done what they had asked of her, and now she was convicted and serving her sentence at the women's prison in Pee Wee Valley. And she was not thrilled about how things had ended up, but she had somewhat of a trusting relationship with Agent Deirdre Fike, so that was going to be the key to getting her to stay involved. And Agent Fike had become the lead investigator and was truly invested in this case. I mean, who wouldn't be at this point after working it for so long? She hated Mel. She had to get the job done. She continued to meet with now Sergeant Wesley weekly, and she made regular trips to visit Marianne in prison. And after a lot of soft coercion, she got Marianne to agree to testify again. By the way, if you're curious, Mel didn't get to go back to the home he'd lived in on Florian Road before all this happened. Um, He was ordered to live with a family member in LaFontenay Apartments in Middletown. His house had been sold. Uh, They had deeded the house to his mom while he was in jail, and she died and left it to the children, and his sister was in charge. And then, anyway, the house was actually sold in December of 1990 to a couple named Ronald and Judith Watkins. And I know this seems like kind of an obscure detail, but just hold on to that. So back to Marianne. She went ahead and fired her now longtime attorney, Jack Vitadow, And when she did, he made a statement, quote, we met when she wrote some bad checks and we parted with some bad checks. So I'm guessing he did not get paid for his services. And he was replaced by Louisville attorney Mari Comer. And their relationship started with a failed attempt to grant her probation. And shortly after, there was an announcement. Uh, U.S. District Court Judge Edward Johnstone moved the trial to Chattanooga and set the date for July 13th. And this is a different Judge Johnstone, which is crazy. But So remember how I said they were hoping to find some sort of new compelling evidence for this trial? Well, they did. 
courtesy of a man named Steve Slider. He was a document examiner who testified in hundreds of court cases. If you'll recall, I mentioned that when Mel's house was first searched, he was an avid note taker and they found a calendar with notes on almost every day of the year, but the days around when Brenda went missing had been blotted out. And there had been a delay in the trial date, now set for October, so they had a little time to study this calendar. And so some of the entries that Steve Slider found were notes of phone calls to M.A. and B.S., so Marianne and Brenda Schaefer. This was huge because Mel had testified that he had no contact with Marianne for months before Brenda went missing, and this proved otherwise. On September 23rd, the night before the murder, there was a note for shovel, supplies, and at 8 p.m., call B.S., And as for notes on the day of the murder, he thought he could make out the words spank and eat later. And the next entry was really hard to read, and he didn't think it would be admissible in court, but he thought it read beat and then sex dash keep bound in house dot 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 unrealistic. So Mel and his attorney would see photographs of these entries at the evidence hearing, and the Schaefer family was able to see the fear on his face when he saw those photos of his handwriting. So on September 9th, they again moved the trial location, this time to London, Kentucky, and it would start on October 13th. Now, while they were waiting... A man named Steve Doherty was hired by the new owners of Mel's former home on Florian Road in Plainview to install some new carpet. The new owners, Judith and Ronald Watkins, liked their new house, and they even really liked that god-awful-sounding updated bathroom Mel put all his money into. To each his own. What they didn't love was the brown carpeting in the great room, which spanned down a hallway, past a wet bar, and into the kitchen. So they scheduled to have it replaced on October 1st, 1992, 12 days before Mel was scheduled to go on trial. Four men would do the job, Steve Doherty, along with his brother Mike, plus 24-year-old Joe Blackburn and 19-year-old Donovan Harold. And they arrived around 10 a.m. that morning and figured the job would take about three or four hours. And working near where the hallway met the kitchen, they thought it was a bit strange how tightly fastened part of the rug was. They had a really hard time pulling it up there, and when they finally got it up, they saw a rectangular hole hidden below the carpet. Are you guys excited? I'm excited. There was an opening about four inches by ten inches cut close to the wall, and he reached down and he saw a plastic Ziploc bag in there fastened to one side of the vent with duct tape. Well, there was some jewelry. There were three small black film canisters, and they went out and got Judith Watkins, the owner, who immediately understood the brevity of what they had just found, and she asked them 
like, do you know who lived in this house? And when they put two and two together, they were like, oh my God. So she called Agent Fike, who wasn't available at that moment, so they reached her supervisor, Mike Griffin, instead, who'd been working on the case forever, too. And he was thrilled. When more law enforcement agents started finding out what they had found, they, quote, hugged like school children. So Fike, along with Alan Bond and Ed Armento of the FBI Violent Crime Squad, rushed over to the house and... They had the carpet installers reenact how they found the bag, and more and more agents were showing up for security. And the most immediate concern was what shape was the film in, since it had been living in a heat duct for years now. So they called Brian Keller with Metro Photo Lab to have the photos processed. Gathered around that lab on the second floor of the Louisville Police Department, Agent Fike saw something she both yearned to find for years and hoped she'd never see. The first photo was of Brenda Sue Schaefer tied to the coffee table in Marianne's apartment. It was exactly the scene Marianne had described. The photos were still in surprisingly good condition, and he processed all three rolls for police, which came out to be 112 photographs in total. Brian Keller was the man who processed all these photographs for the police, and he said, quote, it was a very detailed, systematic approach. Let's document each stage. It was kind of chilling. They started out as if Brenda had been arrested. Frontal picture, profile, back. They showed the same thing as she removed layers of clothes. You could tell she had been crying. It was humiliating. You could tell she was very humiliated. So 6 p.m. that same day, Agent Fike returned to FBI headquarters with the photos and more excitement than she'd felt in a long time. And maybe the most important thing about all this was that the photos matched what Marianne told them so closely, all of a sudden she had all the credibility in the world. She had just become an extremely reliable witness. Unlike the first time around when the jury felt they couldn't trust or believe a word she said. They brought Tom and Mike Schaefer down to headquarters and were able to show them the jewelry to confirm it was Brenda's, but they were instructed not to tell anyone about their find, not even the rest of the family. They were trying to keep this quiet, and they still had their hurdles. Mel's face wasn't in a single photograph, so they were like, we're not going to do anything right away. We need his fingerprints or some way to confirm that this is him. So... Unfortunately, someone, probably a neighbor who saw the commotion at the house, tipped off reporters, one of whom called Clay, Mel's attorney, to ask what he thought about the rumors of what they'd found in the heat duct, and he was stunned. And Clay tried to call the FBI and get answers, but no one would talk to him. And when they realized that this was about to blow up, uh, Sears and Lazowski decided they better go ahead and get Mel into custody before he tried to run. But instead of just getting an arrest warrant, they also needed the judge to sign an order, quote, allowing Ignato to be stripped and photographed naked, which was legal under federal statute. 
So just after 11 p.m., FBI agents swarmed LaFontenay Apartments, and they watched Mel casually walk from his apartment building towards his car in loafers, shorts, and a tan windbreaker. And he saw them, and he asked, what do you want from me this time? To which they responded by handcuffing him. And he told them, quote, I was going out to get some ice cream. Not today, buddy. So very early Friday morning, October 2nd, they were able to photograph a tall, naked, and probably very nervous Mel Ignato. See, although his face hadn't been in any of the photographs, a man's body was in some of them. So they needed to match his naked body to the one in the photos. Oh, and apparently all of a sudden he was shy because he refused to strip in front of Agent Fike because she was a woman. Very ironic. And this is so great. They made Mel pose in the same ways he made Brenda pose. And all the agents stood there watching him. And there's a great line here from the book. Quote, Griffin saw the arrogance drain from his face. Ignato had always indulged in sexual fantasies. This was probably not one of them. Little bitch. So they were thrilled during this little display that it was obvious that Mel's body was the same one as in the photographs and that dumbass didn't take off his watch in the photographs and the one he was wearing was the exact one he was wearing when arrested. Now I'll read you this other paragraph from the book that I think is just really powerful. Quote, after four years of lie, self-absorption, and self-pity, Ignato would now take the only route left to him. He would plead guilty with the same piety with which he had maintained his innocence. His guilty plea would save the federal government money and spare the Schaefer family additional grief. Ignato would then seek full credit for his voluntary display of kindness and compassion. So he's like, look how great I am for pleading guilty now that you all finally have enough evidence against me. He just sucks. So... Now they had to do the dance, right? So Clay met with FBI agents knowing his one last card to play was that the federal government didn't want to spend upwards of 100 grand prosecuting Mel in London, Kentucky. They also didn't really want the photographs put out there because once they were put into evidence, they'd be everywhere. And the Schaefer family really didn't need to see those photographs. So here's how this worked. There was a seven-page guideline booklet to figure out how federal crimes equated to sentences. So when you plugged in perjury, subordination of perjury, and lying to a grand jury, plus points added or subtracted for criminal history, cooperation, and other factors like that, the most Mel was looking at was eight to ten years. They knew if they went to trial, the max they would get would be just over ten. They also knew that Mel would be a good prisoner and get time off for that. So because of this, Clay offered only two options. Deal or go to trial. So here's what they ended up offering. Mel was guaranteed the low end of the sentence if he would plead guilty to all three charges and publicly confess that the murder was premeditated. So Clay accepted the deal, and Mel was set to publicly confess, finally, at a change of plea proceeding at 2 o'clock that day.
families from both parties rush to the courthouse. And I just love this. It gives me goosebumps. Quote, Ernie Jasmine looked up at the Schaefer family and wiggled eight fingers at them. Mel was getting eight years. Now, I know this is frustrating. It should have been so many more, but just imagine the relief, even if temporary, in that moment for Brenda's family. It was finally proven the world would soon know that Mel did it. And Bob Hill went on to write, quote, Ignato occasionally stared at the Schaefers, who stared back, unwilling to give an emotional inch to him. A little after three o'clock, Mel went before the judge and everyone in the room and stated for the first time, quote, on September 24th, 1988, I did take Brenda Sue Schaefer over to Marianne Shore's house on Poplar Level Road, and I did physically and sexually assault her, and I did murder her. And a few questions later, Sears asked how she died, to which he responded, quote, she died from having inhaled chloroform. She died peacefully. So frustrating, man. There was nothing peaceful about her death. Um, he turned to the Schaefers to address them directly afterwards, and he said, quote, I just wanted to say to Brenda's family that I'm very sorry this happened. I know all the pain and sorrow and suffering I have caused you. I have felt it myself. And if that doesn't just make you want to reach back in time and wring his neck, I don't know what would. Remember, this family lost the brother, Jack Jr., when they were younger. He was murdered in the line of duty as a police officer. And I don't know if I mentioned it before, but his killer was out on parole. And now Brenda's killer was only getting eight years. And they'd lost both their parents before they were able to see this tiny sliver of justice served. And it's just... It's really tragic. So, some final details before I wrap up here. Sergeant Wesley, who spent so much time involved with that case, he missed the confession. He was at the zoo with his family. He heard it on the radio as he was leaving. And Charlie Ricketts found out when Mel's son Mike called him crying, telling him that Mel had, in fact, done it. On November 13th, 1992, Mel fired Clay as his attorney and asked that all his files be sent back to Ricketts. David Whaley, the jury foreman from Mel's trial, said he heard the confession on TV, and he said that he still felt the jury had done the right thing, though maybe they should have deliberated a little longer. You think? There was a lot of public pressure to find more charges against Mel on a state level, but after a ton of research going back over and over the case, they just couldn't find any legal way around it without committing double jeopardy. Neither Mel nor Marianne would face additional charges. Dr. William Spaulding went on to work in a low-income family clinic operated by the Board of Health until he retired. Uh, Marianne did kind of a good thing. She was scheduled for her first parole hearing one year into her sentence in 93, but she waived her right to the hearing and pledged to serve her full sentence. In November 1992, Mel was sentenced to eight years, one month, in federal prison. No chance of parole, but the standard 54 days would be shaved off his sentence for each year of good behavior. And he was fined... $150, which that joker probably didn't even have at that point. 
He wrote the Schaefers a letter, and in it he claimed, quote, Brenda's murder had come as the result of a life lived away from God. The murder had occurred while he was being influenced by the devil. I hate this guy so much. He's just a tiny little man in a big man's body. Oh, and he was already certain that he was forgiven in the eyes of God. He asked for a reduced sentence on April 15th, 1993, which is the day I was born. And the judge said no. But this was kind of dwarfed by the fact that a week later, a Courier-Journal article revealed that Mel would get out two years earlier than originally thought because of his time served in the Jefferson County Jail. That would be applied to his sentence. This meant he would get out in November of 1997, just a five-year sentence. And in December of 94, he was transferred to a low-security federal prison in Virginia to be closer to his family. Mel was released after serving five years, but later went back on trial for perjury he committed during the civil suit that he filed himself against Dr. Spaulding. So he went back to prison to serve a nine-year sentence, and this time he was released in 2006. And he stayed in Louisville after that, living in a home just four miles from the apartment where he murdered Brenda. And he was found dead in his home in September 2008 at 70 years old. He fell and bled out. His neighbor described him as, quote, a sick and elderly man, alone and struggling for help when he apparently stumbled to his death. I used to hear him all night asking for Jesus to come get him because he was in a lot of pain. And I think that's where I'll leave you guys. If you enjoyed these episodes, I'm glad because I put in a lot of hours on it. And as a little thank you, on behalf of this series of episodes, head on over to the Center for Women and Families website. It's thecenteronline.org and click donate on the top right hand side of the screen. Thank you and until next time.